Well, good morning, everyone. How are you all doing today? Good, good, good. Well, I'm going to begin by asking for a little bit of patience with me today. I've uh, had some allergies that have turned into something a little more, and so I'm going to push on through by faith. Um, so if, uh, if, we, uh, if we have some coughing or whatever, that's why I'm not wearing the headset. That way I don't have to blow you all out with that, so I'm going to just use the handheld for today. Uh, but we're continuing our series. Uh, Pastor conveniently started a series and then left and went to Alaska. So I guess I'm just going to have to pick up the mantle and run from there. So last week, though, he started uh, this series about breakthrough. And, uh, and, and so today we're going to continue that. And the name of uh, today's uh, message is Seize the Moment. We're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 2. Now, in the news recently, I saw uh, that there was a, a, a nuclear reactor in uh, northwest Arkansas that was finally brought offline. Uh, they had opened it uh, in 1969, and it had only operated for three years, from 69 to 72, um, and, and it was supposed to be a testbed reactor. And then after they, GE stopped operating it, they, they deeded it over to the University of Arkansas, and they were supposed to use it for research. And for whatever reason, they were never able to get that program up and running. So for the next 47 years, this nuclear reactor just sat, uh, you know, not untended. Obviously, they had people watching it, but it wasn't doing anything. It wasn't operational. They weren't doing anything with it. So um, just a few years ago, they decided it's time to finally shutter this thing. Let's shut it down. So they opened it up to the public. They said, hey, if you want to come in and check it out, uh, you can see this, you know, because it was a throwback to a different era. It was throwback to the Cold War era and, and early nuclear technology. And, and so uh, people lined up to come and see this thing. Um, and, and I think part of the thrill for some of the people was that there's something so powerful in this building. Uh, and just being that close to something that has so much potential, uh, it, it, there's a little bit of a thrill that comes with that. So finally in 2019, they shut it down. Uh, and so it, it, it's closed out and it's completely done. And uh, that reminded me a little bit of the church. You know, sometimes we can kind of be like that ourselves because for 47 years, this nuclear reactor had a ton of potential energy within it. They could have used it to create heat and electricity and power, and instead it just sat there unused. And sometimes we're the same way. We're full of potential, potential power by the virtue of the Holy Spirit living within us, and yet we don't use that power within us. So we have the power to change the broken status quo, to alter history, to change the trajectory of lives by virtue of the Holy Spirit within us. If only we could just seize the moment. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. And I'm going to ask you all to help me preach today. So several times I'm going to say, I'm going to point at you and I want you all to say, seize the moment. So let's practice that right now. One, two, three. That's right. That lets me know you're awake, and it saves my voice just a little bit. So uh, anytime I point at you, I want you to say, seize the moment. So one more time. One, two, three. Seize the moment. That's right. Okay. I think you guys have this down. So last week, Pastor began talking to us about the process of mourning that Nehemiah went through when he heard the news of, of the state of Jerusalem. I mean, he loved Jerusalem. That would be like us having moved away from Louisville, and then we get a report back from some family members that, that Louisville has just been destroyed, that it's, a, that it's a shell, it's a husk of its former self, that would sadden us, wouldn't it? 
And so for Nehemiah, I mean, this was his homeland. And not only was this his homeland because he was from the tribe of Judah, but this was also the holiest site for, for Israelites. This is where the temple was. This is where God came and lived among his people. And for the temple and for the city to be destroyed in the way that it was, it was just heart-wrenching. And, uh, but, but Nehemiah, he couldn't stay there in that state of mourning. He had to move on with his life or move past that moment because he had responsibilities. He had obligations. He actually served personally the king of Persia. And so he, he had to get up and, and continue on. And, uh, and we have to do the same thing. We don't necessarily move on from a period of mourning because the mourning never entirely goes away. The pain of the loss, it never entirely goes away. But we do have to learn how to move past that moment and say, although I've had this loss... You know, my life is continuing on past this moment. As sad as this moment is, I have to move on. But mourning is, is normal. It's, it's a vital part of the healing process. Um, it, it's a necessary part of the healing process. And if you don't mourn, if you don't allow yourself that moment to feel that pain and feel that loss, then, then you're not able to move on and move past in the way that you should. But the important part about mourning is that it's a period of time. It's interesting that in, in ancient civilizations, they would have a period of time when they would mourn. Sometimes it would be seven days or 30 days, um, and, and sometimes it would even be longer, like in Egypt where there was the, the, the long embalming process. And so the entire time that this body was being embalmed, the whole nation would come together and mourn during that time. But, uh, but Nehemiah knew that he couldn't stay in that moment. He had to move on, and, and we're going to read about how the, the period of mourning ended and it turned into something else. It turned into not despair and not disappointment, but he used that pain and that hurt, that, that heartbreak that he had, and he turned it to good. So we're going to be looking in Nehemiah chapter 2, and we're going to read verse by verse because I've got some observations I want to share as we make our way through here. It says, Early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. So I just want to make a quick point there is um, I think it's interesting that even in Scripture, it, it locates it in a time and a place. You know, you might think, well, why does it matter what month and day it was? What this does is this allows us to go back and look at the archaeological record, and it allows us to look do historical research, and we can see that this isn't just made-up fairy tale stuff. Uh, you can see so many people that were mentioned in the Bible, they found inscriptions with their names on them. They find royal seals with, with the king's names on them, and they're able to date that. And, and, and so we see that the Bible isn't just made up fiction. It's not just you know stories. It's real. It's grounded in reality. And I'm thankful for that. I, I know I'm a little nerdy. I like to read the archaeology reports and that kind of stuff. But when I see that kind of stuff... Uh, that just fires me up because it's like, God, this is one more thing that I can use to show somebody that your word is true. Everything in it is true, whether it's true literally, figuratively, metaphorically, however it is that you're speaking to us in this way, it is true, and I can rely on that truth. So verse number two, uh, or continuing on with number one, it says, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified. I thought this was an important uh, thing to point out. Then he was terrified. Anybody ever been terrified before? It's not a good feeling. And why was Nehemiah terrified? Well, he was terrified because he had meticulously crafted and maintained a veneer that said, everything is okay in my life. 
I'm, I'm the utmost professional. I always come to job. I don't I come to my job, and I don't let the things that are going on in my personal life affect me. I keep it all put together, and, and we do that. We try to do the same thing. We try to put on a mask, and we try to act like everything's okay, but sometimes there, you develop a crack in your mask, or, or the mask slips a little bit, and that could be frightening because people see beyond what we want them to see, and they begin seeing the mess that lies behind sometimes. So Nehemiah was terrified, one, because the, the veneer had cracked, but also because he did it in the worst possible place and in front of the worst possible person. You don't ever want to make the king unhappy when the king literally holds your life in his hand. You don't ever want to make the king feel upset or sad. Why? Because if you make the king upset or sad, he's going to make you have a bad day. And so Nehemiah was terrified. He had allowed that mask to slip, and so, and, and so he was terrified. Verse 3, uh, the king respond, uh, responds, or I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm trying to today, guys. My head's a little foggy. Uh, verse 3, uh, Nehemiah replied, but I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king asked, well, how can I help you? Um, that's not necessarily the response that I think Nehemiah was expecting. I don't think he was expecting the king to say, how can I help you? But the king had made just the right response. God had lined up this opportunity for Nehemiah to be able to speak to this king and tell him exactly what he needed. God had provided an opening, and so that provided an opportunity for Nehemiah to... That's right. Seize the moment. Oh, we got to practice that. You got to wake up, all right? So they gave the, uh, uh, Nehemiah the opportunity to... There we go. And so it says, with a prayer to God in heaven, I replied. This is verse 5. If it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. Nehemiah knew exactly what to say. Why? Because he'd been sitting there and he'd been turning this thing over in his head. How can we fix this? The, the, the state of Jerusalem is not how it should be. What can we do to fix this problem? And so he'd been thinking about it. He'd been ruminating on it. Man, if I, if I just didn't have these responsibilities here in the court, what could I do? Maybe I could go back to Jerusalem. Maybe I could help get things back the way they're supposed to be. And so when the time came, Nehemiah knew exactly what to say. He said, well, hey, uh, Jerusalem's in ruins. Send me. So the king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will you be gone and when will you return? And after I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. Can we get an amen right there? That's awesome. When, when someone who's not even a believer is willing to, to work towards the things that God wants to do in this earth, I'm going to celebrate all day long. And see, the king tested the plan, but Nehemiah was ready. He had a plan. He said, this is how long I'm going to have to be gone. This is what I'm going to have to do. And when he did that, he was able to seize the moment. That's correct. Verses 7 and 8, it says, I also said to the king, if it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. And the king granted these requests. Okay? So, Nehemiah, once he overcame the initial fear, you see a little boldness bubble up in him. 
You know, because he didn't just say, oh, king, it's okay. As long as you'll just let me go, I can get this done. I can take care of it. And he said, well, since you did offer, let me, uh, let me just throw some requests out there at you. And so it wasn't enough for the king just allow him to go. He would also need letters of introduction, supplies to fix the temple, supplies to fix the walls, supplies to build him a home. Uh, Nehemiah was like, well, you know, if you're going to offer, I'm going to take advantage of that. He wanted to take this opportunity to... That's correct. Um, and then uh, Nehemiah notes that the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. Nehemiah found success. He acknowledged that this entire project relied solely on the grace of God. God provided the opportunity. God made the king um, uh, open to this. And he, God also lined it up so that they would have everything that they need to accomplish the purpose. And so... Um, you know, Nehemiah went from being afraid, shaken in his boots, I'm terrified because the king has seen behind my mask, he's seen why I'm so upset, and, to, and now he's like, okay, this is the time. This is why I've been upset. This is why this has been on my heart and I've been bothered, because this is the moment when God has called me to step up in faith and do something about it. We're going to skip on just a little bit because it talks about some of the, the issues that he had on his way to Jerusalem, but it's, it notes in verse 18, that when he finally gets back to Jerusalem, he tells everybody about all of the miraculous things that God did to make this entire project possible. And it says in verse 18, I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. His testimony when he got back and when he began to tell people about how God had provided these opportunities and how he had responded in faith, it ignited something in the other people. This was a people that had been living in a broken land and they had never tried to fix the walls. They had never tried to repair the temple. Long ago, they had resigned themselves to the fact that this is just the way things are. It's messed up. This isn't the way I want it to be, but I'm powerless to do anything about it. But all it took was one man willing to step up in faith to... And it lit something. It sparked something inside of them. And so they latched onto Nehemiah's vision, and they latched onto the promise of God's graciousness like starving people. Anybody ever been so hungry that you're like, I don't care what it is. I just want it in me now, right? You been that hungry? It's like, I don't care if it's Brussels sprouts or asparagus or, or whatever it is. Uh, you know, if you're going to give it to me, I'm going to eat it. I'm that hungry. And that's how these people were. They'd been living in a, in a terrible situation. And when there came a, a glimpse of hope from God, they, they latched onto it. So you might say, well, that's all well and good. I'm proud for Nehemiah. I'm glad that this worked out for him. But what does that have to do with me? You know, I have problems today. I have problems in the here and now, and I need my breakthrough today. Well, we, we're, we're, there's a few things that we can take away from this to enable us to also seize the moment. The first is, is that the abundant life that Jesus promised you, it lies before you. The, you just have to reach out and grasp it. It is ready to be lived. God makes promises not because he wants us to feel good. He made us a promise because he's going to come through with it. Like Stephanie was saying earlier, if, if God says that he's going to do something, he's going to do it. We can rely on it. John chapter 10, verse 10 says, The thief came only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus has come so that you can have life abundantly. It was talking about his sheep there. If you're a part of his, uh, of his flock, 
then you have been promised life and life abundantly. Now, some of us can look at our life and we say, this does not look like the life abundant that God promised me. You know, we sit there and we think, why do I continue to struggle pay to, paycheck to paycheck? Why am I constantly button heads with my spouse? Why am I constantly at odds with my child? You know, why is my boss the meanest booger that's ever lived? You know, we look at that and we think, this is not the life abundant that God promised me. And when we look at the state of this world and all of the empty vanities and the broken promises that it offers, and then compare that with the promises of, a, of an abundant life from God, there's no contest. Why would you want to even try to find your fulfillment in what the world has to offer? You know, so many of these, these famous people, I was talking with someone before church about how, you know, the, these uh, movie stars and musicians and all that, they want to get up and they want to tell us how we ought to live our life. They, ought to, they want to tell us how we ought to vote. They want to tell us all of this. And, and, and really, the thing is, is that they're not any better off than we are. You know, so many of them in, in interviews, they'll talk about, well, I thought when I finally broke in, uh, broke in and I finally became famous or when I finally hit that platinum record or when I finally got this money or whatever, they think that they're going to find fulfillment in that, but they find quickly that that stuff is all empty. And then what do they do? They turn around and they self-medicate with drugs and alcohol and partying and their life just becomes a shambles. You would think people who, you know, uh, are worshipped on the streets and followed on Facebook and, and, and Instagram and, and all of that, you would think that they would be happy, but they're not because they're latching on to the promises of the world, not the promises of what God has for us. If we're going to have breakthrough like Nehemiah did, then we have to understand something important. It all begins with you. Why? Well, the reason it begins with you is because the biggest barrier between you and your breakthrough is you. I mean, how many times do we shoot ourselves in the foot? You know, I've talked with Ben about this before because he's a very good student, and, and he'll do his homework, and he'll do the project, and then because he's forgetful, he'll go to school and just forget to turn it in, and he'll get a zero on the assignment. And I tell him, I'm like, son, you spent an hour working on that, or you spent three days building that website or, or putting this project together, and then you didn't turn it in, and you got the zero. And, you know, used to be in middle school, the teachers would say, well, if you'll just turn it in late, it'll be okay. I'll give you partial credit or whatever. But in high school, man, they're, they're, they're strict. They're like, no, it was due on the 18th. You didn't turn it in on the 18th. You got a big, fat goose egg, right? And he's shooting himself in the foot on that. And we do that over and over and over again. You would think if I'm telling him not to shoot himself in the foot that I wouldn't do it to myself, but I do. I sabotage myself all the time. I know things that I need to be doing. I know that I need to be spending more time in prayer and, and reading Scripture. I know that I need to spend more time investing in other people instead of being caught up in my own thoughts and my own world and my own desires. I know these things, and yet I continually shoot myself in the foot. But the problem is, like most people... And Nehemiah was the same place. Nehemiah started from a place of fear. It said he was terrified, literally terrified. And we also do the same thing. We start from a place of fear. Why? Why are we fearful? Well, one, because we have unconfessed sin in our life. You know, uh, remember last week when Pastor was talking about how we need to repent? You know, that was one of the first things Nehemiah did. He said, me and my people, my tribe, my family, and I myself have sinned against you. He confessed his sins, so then he didn't have to be afraid before God anymore because it's out in the open. See, sin only uh, has power over us when, it's, when it remains hidden because we're ashamed of it. We don't want people to know about it. I can think of no better example of this than Adam and Eve in the garden. When God came down, the very first thing he asked them, he said, where are you? 
Now, I don't think God lost Adam and Eve, you know? He knows everything. But I think he was trying to point out, you're hiding from me. You're withdrawing from me. I created you to have a relationship with you, and yet because of the shame of the sin in your life, you have withdrawn from me. And we do that because of the shame in our lives um, and the shame of unconfessed sin. The second reason we have fear is because we are disappointed in ourselves. We have self-loathing. We, we look at ourselves and we think, John, why are you such an idiot? You know, John, why did you do this again? John, why did you wait till the last minute to start on this project again? John, why did you not change the air filter before the AC unit exploded? You know, John, why did you not change the oil before the car blew up? You know, we, we sit there and we're disappointed with ourselves constantly. There's always room for improvement. And we beat ourselves up when we really ought to be looking at the grace that God has extended to us. And then the third reason that we have fear that, that holds us in and that cages us is because it's just part of who we are. Recently, Ben asked me in the car, he was like, hey, Dad, you know, he said, have you ever taken the Myers-Briggs uh, test? And it, it's, it's a personality test that tells you whether or not you're um, introverted or extroverted. Are you more interested in, you know, a fair play, all these different things. And, and I've taken that test before, and I didn't find it too useful. But, but we like to find these personality tests, things that will tell us all about ourselves. Now, one that I found recently that I've really enjoyed is, is called the Enneagram, and what it does is it'll, it'll rate you, it'll give you a number one through nine, and it tells you a little bit what motivates you, but the thing that I think is really interesting about this test is it tells you what is the fear behind your motivation, and I thought, man, that, that's kind of cool because it looks at, uh, you know, how the, the, this base fear that we have in our lives, and, and why do you have that fear? Maybe it's just your personality. Maybe it's a result of your upbringing, but we all have some sort of fear that motivates us, and let, I'm just going to read through some of these and, and see if they sound familiar to you. If you are a type one on this Enneagram, you fear becoming corrupt or evil. They work for, to be a force of good in, in, the, in the world because they realize, they see within themselves that if, if I allow myself to go unchecked, I could become a force for evil in the world. So that is a fear for them. Uh, if you're type two, they fear being unloved. Have you ever known anybody who it just seems like everything they did was just a cry for love? They just want to be loved and accepted. Number three, uh, if you're a type three, they fear being worthless. They want to be helpful. They want to be useful. They want to, they, they want to be Thomas the Tank Engine, a very useful engine, you know? Uh, if you're number four, they fear being without an identity. Anybody ever known somebody who was, they, they were just trying to find their identity? Everything they did was trying to find who I am. I think this one might affect middle children a lot, right? Because if you're not the oldest and you're not the youngest, then you're in the middle and it's, who am I? You know, what's my shtick? Um, Number five, uh, they uh, fear being helpless or incompetent. They don't ever want to be in a situation where there's nothing that they can do to help themselves. Uh, number six is uh, fear being without support or direction. If you give them a project and don't tell them what you expect from them, man, that is the worst possible thing for a number six. Number seven, uh, they fear deprivation and pain. You know, they, they don't ever want to be in a place of want or need. Number eight, they fear being controlled or harmed by others. And number nine, they fear loss, disharmony, and conflict. Now, did any of those sound familiar to you? Any of you maybe have some of those fears yourselves? And sometimes we can sit there and we can ask ourselves, well, John, why did you react the way you did? You know, why did you say that? You know, they didn't mean anything by it, and yet you snapped at them. You bit their head off. Why? Probably because they hit pretty close to one of my base fears. 
you know, and so you lash out. And so that fear, it's a natural part of our wiring. So it's not something that we can necessarily turn off. But the problem comes is when we allow the enemy to take our fear and weaponize it and use it against us. When, when, when the devil can take your fear of, of being without, of deprivation, and he can cause you to close the, the strings of your coin purse and you never give and you never bless others, you know, all you're doing is you're hurting yourself. You're just cutting yourself off from the blessings of God that he has in store for you. The same thing, if, if you are constantly uh, looking uh, to be loved, and, and uh, then, then the enemy uses your fear of being unloved, and, and so you start looking for love in all the wrong places, like the old song says, right? And, and, and we begin to do things that we know are not of God, and we look for, for, for love, and we look for acceptance in places where we should not be looking. And so all of these things, it's a natural part of our wiring but the problem is, is that the enemy will weaponize that against us. When we are bound by fear, let's see if you're awake, fear can prevent us from stepping up so that we can... That's right. So if we are bound up by fear and self-loathing and, and by unconfessed sin, then, then what are we going to do about it? You know, that's the question. You know, if, if we want breakthrough in our lives, we're not just going to be happy with the way it is. We've got to keep pushing forward. We've got to keep moving. So the next thing we know is that breakthrough starts when, to happen when we overcome our fear with faith, all right? That's important. Breakthrough starts to happen when we overcome our fear with faith. When the king asked Nehemiah how he could help, what did Nehemiah respond? He said, well, since you offered, I'm going to ask for this, and then he asked for more, and then he asked for more, and then he asked for more. You know, it, it, was, it was a statement and a response of faith. No lack of resources was going to stop Nehemiah from taking the chance to, that's right. He had taken on a new mindset. He went from being terrified at the beginning to now all of a sudden he's like, well, here, if, if I can get it, why don't you give me this and you give me that and you give me that and then we'll get this done, all these things that God wants to do and desires to do in Jerusalem. He'd taken on a faith-charged, abundant life mindset. And this is something that we see in the New Testament, too. We see Jesus teaching this very same mindset to his disciples. In Luke chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, he says, And so I tell you, keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and, everyone, and to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. This is an abundant life mindset. If I need something, all I have to do is say, God, I need you to provide this for me. I need you to, to line this up for me. I really need a better paying job so that I can help take care of my family. Uh, or maybe, God, I need a job that will allow me some freedom to be home a little more during this very important formative time of my child's, uh, you know, my child's years. Um, maybe we need to say, um, God, I need to be around people that, that aren't going to drag me down, that aren't going to wear me down. You know, because sometimes we get in an environment that is negative for us. It's hostile towards us. It's hostile towards your faith. It's hard to walk in joy and, and, and compassion and, and all of those good feelings that we're supposed to have, those fruits of the Spirit that we're supposed to have. It's hard to, to exist in that when you're surrounded by constant negativity and backbiting and complaining. You know, that, that actually rewires your brain. 
I was listening to a, a, uh, a psychologist. He was talking about how they've done MRI studies now about people who refer to things negatively and people who refer to things positively. And they said just by reframing the situation as a positive thing, it, 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 it ends in the same place, but the way that the electrical impulses move, it moves down an entirely different pathway. And he said the more you use the positive pathways, the stronger those connections come, the more likely it becomes. We can train our brains to look at things from God's perspective. Are you hearing that? We can train our, our mind to see things the way God sees them, from, from a point of abundance, not from a, a point of lack. And so Nehemiah had reached that place. He'd found a time and, 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 a, and, a, and an opportunity where he could seize the moment all right, so all of the pieces fell into place. He had the passion. He had the permission. He had the provision, and then he pounced, all right, because it was time. All of the things were lined up, and now is the time. When I was a young, uh, a young boy, they came out with a series of video games called Frogger. Anybody here ever play Frogger? Yeah, I think, uh, I think the first one started off with the frog trying to cross the interstate, and I think maybe the second one was you're trying to cross the, the stream with the logs floating by. All I know is that if you didn't time it just right, you got splatted, right? You got squished by that big old semi or that car. And so you would have to try and figure out, can I make it across? And so you would sit there and you'd watch all the cars coming by and they're moving in different directions, they're moving at different speeds. And you would try to find that precise moment where it's like, okay, if I go right now, I could make it across and I'll be safe. But the interesting thing about Frogger is that you might be able to see the pattern for the first few rows, but for whatever reason, it was a whole lot harder to see the pattern for the last few rows. And so sometimes you had to just step out in faith and say, I know I can make it through the first three or four rows. It's going to be up to God to see if I make it through the rest. You know, and so sometimes it's like that. You know, we will step out in faith, and we don't always see where the end of that path is going. And so we have to do that. When, when we have the things lined up, when we have God's permission, when we have his provision, then that's when we have to say, God, I'm going to step out. I'm going to seize the moment, right? Okay. Um, if the musicians would like to come up, we're going to try and wrap this up. But I want to point out a couple more things about Nehemiah. Uh, rather than waiting for God to fix it all, and God could have, right? I mean, God can, God can snap his fingers and make anything happen. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can part the Red Sea. He can make the dead walk. He can, he can make the lame walk and, and the dead rise and the blind see. He can do anything he wants to do. So, you know, we can be tempted sometimes to say, well, if God wants to do it, he can just do it, right? But he waits for us. He provides us an opportunity to be a part of that process. Um, and so Nehemiah understood a very important principle. He knew that if he was going to have breakthrough, if they were going to be able to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and reclaim that promise that God had, had given to them, that he was going to have to be a part of that breakthrough. And the same is true for you. You are going to have to be a part of your own breakthrough. In the next few chapters, it tells the story of how Nehemiah traveled from, from, uh, from the, the king's court all the way back to Jerusalem. It tells how he confronted the enemies that would rise up and try to oppose him. It tells how he went out and surveyed the land to see if we're going to fix this thing, what do we need to do to fix it? It talks about how he went out and he cast the vision to the elders of the community and said, listen, I need you guys to get on board. God's trying to do something here, and we need to take advantage of this. We need to... 
That's right. And then he goes out. He rallies the people. He directs their efforts. He tells them, hey, I want you to take this section of wall. And I want you to take this section of wall. And you to take that section of wall. And you build your wall. Because one man building a wall by himself can't do it. But if they all pitched in and they all worked together, they would be able to accomplish God's purpose. And while everything that they did was covered in prayer, if you read the book of Nehemiah, you'll see many times where it says, and then with a prayer to God, or I fell on my face before the Lord, or I sought the Lord. You know, everything they did was covered in prayer, but Nehemiah understood that prayer is not always enough. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not downing the power of prayer. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is effective. But sometimes just praying about it's not enough. You know, because we can pray and we say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I messed up. God, I'm sorry that that I didn't do these things the right way. But then if we don't do something different, we find ourselves back in the exact same place. So yes, we need to pray, but we also need to act. When the, the opportunity presents itself, we have to seize the moment. So this leads us to a question, and it's a question that only you can answer for yourself. I listened back to, you know, because I was in kids' church last week, so I didn't get to hear the sermon, but I listened back to Pastor's sermon, and I heard how he had you raise your hands if there are people who need breakthrough in their life. And from his responses, I'm getting that there were a lot of hands raised last week. Is that true? Okay. Now, how many of you have had your breakthrough in the week since from, from then to now? How many of you guys have had your breakthrough? Maybe you've had... Yes, all right, we've got one breakthrough in the back. But how many of you guys are still waiting for some breakthrough? Still waiting for some breakthrough? Or maybe you got that first one fixed and now you're like, okay, now we're on to phase two, right? And so we all need breakthrough. So this question that we have to ask ourselves is, what specific action do you believe that God is calling you to do? All right, it's not about what do you need to believe? What do you need to think? You know, what do you need to to, to get behind. No, what specific action do you need to do in response to the breakthrough that God is trying to give you? If the breakthrough is, is that you want God to break your addiction to cigarettes, what are you going to need to do to do that? You know, it's pretty simple. You can figure out what the steps are. And you know, sometimes it can feel like this is beyond me, right? It'll feel like I can't do it all. I mean, Nehemiah was trying to rebuild a wall. One man rebuilding an entire city wall, if he looked at it as this is something I have to do, then then he would have never accomplished it. But Nehemiah broke it down into steps. He said, first we need to get the permission from the king. Then we need to get the provisions. Then we need to cast the vision. Then we need to get everybody on board. He went through it step by step. And at the end of the process, God had accomplished something through him that was far beyond anything that Nehemiah could have done on his own. He had breakthrough. So what specific action? And I want you all to think about something. Because if you raised your hand last week and you said, I need breakthrough, you were thinking of a specific circumstance. You were thinking of a specific thing in your life that needs some breakthrough. So the question is, what do you need to do to activate that breakthrough? For some of you, you need to cut some people out of your life or reduce their influence. Because they're not leading you down a godly path. They're not influencing you in a good way. Some of you need to finally stand up to that out-of-control child or teenager. And that's hard to do. Believe me, it is. But sometimes we we let the kids, uh, you know, we we put the cart before the horse. You know what I'm saying? I'm not calling you out, Ben. I'm sorry. Uh, Some of you need to quit that job that's making you work 70 hours a week. And you're not able to, to take care of your family the way that you're supposed to. 
Some of you need to exercise some self-control in your life, whether that's negative eating patterns and habits, maybe it's, uh, you know, um, maybe it's spending patterns. You know, some of us, we just, we, try, we lack that self-control. Some of us need to change our vocabulary. We need to stop speaking negativity into our life. We need to stop complaining. We need to stop pointing out the negatives, and we need to start speaking in terms of blessing and positivity and what God has for us. Some of us need to learn healthy ways to process our emotions rather than lashing out at everybody who has the misfortune of crossing our path. Or we might have the opposite. We might need to quit bottling everything up until it just builds up and like a nuclear reactor, we go off. You need to learn how to process your emotions. Some of us need to stop self-medicating, and we do. You know, and you think this term self-medicating, you think, well, drugs and you think alcohol, but some of us self-medicate with cake, right? And donuts and binge watching of TV. You know, anything that can deaden those negative feelings inside of us. And, and we, we allow those things to have a place in our life that they should not have. So my challenge for you is this. Last week, Pastor asked you, uh, if you felt a need for breakthrough in your life, he asked you to raise your hand. And that was a great first step. But I think if we're all still seeking breakthrough, if we want to seize the moment, then we're going to need to act. We need to pounce just like Nehemiah did. He wasn't ready. When he went to work that day, he had no idea that the interaction with the king was even going to happen. But when the opportunity presented itself, Nehemiah jumped at the opportunity. He said, God, you've opened this door. I'm walking through it. So if that's you today, if you have something that you need breakthrough in, I'm going to ask you to do something simple but it's an action. I want you to stand up and I want you to join me down here in the altar. And I say join me because I'm walking down there too. There's breakthrough that I need in my life. There's victory that I need in my life. I mean, right now I'm just even just a head cold, but things more serious than that. There are things I need God to do on my behalf and I want to seize this moment. I don't want to continue on with a broken status quo. I don't want to look at what we have and just say, well, that's the best it's going to be. I guess I'll just have to learn how to live with it. That's not what I want for my life. So if that's you today, and if you want some breakthrough, I want you to join me down here in the altar. We're going to pray for each other. So come on down.